If you guys would open up your Bibles, we'll get to the um, first part of the teaching. I'm just going to read through the text before Rory comes up to teach. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 1 through 16. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. A couple of weeks ago, we were here in an outdoor service, and uh, the Lord led, I believe, us to be in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, kind of where Jesus had his outdoor service, which he did regularly. <laughs> As Spurgeon said, man, what a sanctuary to have that we're just out in the midst of his creation and away from the rigid, you know, built sanctuary made with man's hands. And we get out here and we just see, you know, some of God's splendor in uh, the beauty of the outdoors. I know that, you know, there's some man-made things here still, but, you know, hear those birds chirping and and uh, see the the trees and just the smell of the wind and when we studied a couple weeks ago, we did a sermon on the Beatitudes, which we see are verses 3 through uh, 12. And we see that these are, this is a, a picture of almost a step-by-step -step process of just the Holy Spirit's work in a Christian's life. And just as the Holy Spirit is working in a Christian's life, they are going to realize that they are poor in spirit, that they have nothing of any merit to bring before the Lord that's of any value, that, that the Lord would look upon them with favor or call them righteous, but rather they are spiritually bankrupt, bankrupt apart from Jesus, and that that would lead to a mourning that takes place, a sorrow for our sin, a godly sorrow that brings repentance that each one of these has a blessing that comes with it, that you would be comforted if you would sorrow over your sin and sorrow over your spiritual bankruptcy. And, and that would lead to the next step of a meekness, kind of a humility, a strength that is bridled, <clears throat> that, that has power, but there's humility behind the power as a Christian. And as you walk in that, there will be uh, an inheritance of the earth. And that will lead to a hunger and a thirst for righteousness where you just crave the things of the Lord, the things that are right, and you abhor evil, and you will be filled as a blessing with more righteousness. You will become merciful. You know, as you've been forgiven much, you realize I've been forgiven much, and that will have a, you know, an effect of you forgiving people much. And as you are forgiving, you will be forgiven. As you are merciful, you'll obtain mercy. Verse 8 there says, that'll lead to just this purity in heart. And a, an eventual seeing of God, as the psalmist says, who will ascend to the holy hill of the Lord or who may abide in his tabernacle? It's the ones that have a, 
a pure heart and clean hands. We know that that purity only comes from the Holy Spirit's work within us. It doesn't come from any external washing or scrubbing we may do. Or as the old law of Moses commanded, no, it's a cleansing of the heart that needs to take place. And as you're pure in heart, you will see the Lord face to face one day. It's a wonderful promise that we have as Christians. That'll lead to a Christian being a peacemaker, kind of having a title of a son of God or a child of God. And in all of these wonderful steps in a Christian's life, these be attitudes, if you will, in a Christian, there's kind of that top platform on the stairwell that we all know. And it in the, the pinnacle of the stairwell is actually people will see all of these goodly chains and fruits in a Christian's life. And at the top of it, you're going to be persecuted for these righteousness sake. At the top of the stairwell, Jesus also says there, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. So in all of this righteousness sake and my name's sake, says Jesus, if you're walking in all of this, sorrowful over sin, realizing your spiritual bankruptcy, being merciful, walking in purity, being a peacemaker, all of these things, it's going to end in not just you kind of living a life of peaches and cream here on this earth, but rather you will be persecuted for righteousness sake. People will, Jesus says, they're going to revile you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. But he says, rejoice, cheer when that happens. Be exceedingly glad because that's how they treated the prophets that came before you. If you're ever persecuted for righteousness sake or for Jesus's namesake, you can be glad because you're in the same boat as Isaiah. You're in the same boat as Malachi. You're in the same boat as Jeremiah. You're in the same boat as Peter and James and John, martyrs for Christ's namesake. If you're persecuted here in Prineville, even on a little scale, our piddly little person persecution scale of in Prineville where like someone looks at you wrong or something that's persecution for us pretty much or your family kind of you know mocks you a little bit around the Thanksgiving day table as you're thankful for Jesus you know they mock you oh I'm being persecuted you can say you know what I'm in the same boat as the prophets that have gone before me I'm in the same boat as Pastor Saeed or Miriam from the Sudan I'm in the same boat as the the Christians in Iraq being persecuted. And so not to completely re-preach the Beatitudes, but just these stairs, one leads to another and they have blessings, each one of them, until finally the greatest blessing, sounds weird to say it, but the greatest blessing is persecution. Why is that a blessing? Because it means that something right is happening and the darkness doesn't like it. And we move from the Beatitudes to what's called just three verses here, 13 through 16. The Beatitudes lead to these three verses called the similitudes, the similitudes. I had to look up what a similitude was because it's not a word in my common usage. You know, I'm smart enough to be like similar, simil, similar, similar, similar. Okay. All right. So I got that part down. <laughs> But simil, similitudes, right? Uh, it's actually, I, I was looking on Wikipedia, which you can trust everything on. It's actually pretty legit nowadays. But it says that a similitude is a concept applicable to the testing of engineering models. A model is said to have similitude with the real application if the two share geometric similarity, kinematic similarity, and dynamic similarity. Half of those words may not have even made sense to you. So I looked those words up. No, I'm kidding. I didn't look those words up. <laughs> but I thought that that was actually kind of interesting that in an engineering world, that the model of the big thing that they're going to make has to be so similar that there has to be real application in the model 
of the finished product. There needs to be geometric similarity. Am I saying that right? Kinematic? Yeah, you went to college. What do you think? Someone Google it. And dynamic similarity. And so what we have when we get to the similitudes in these 13 through 16 verses here, verses 13 through 16, we have the living out of the Beatitudes. Okay? We have the model of the engineered finished product. So all of these Beatitudes of you know, as we're walking in righteousness and in, in, in each step that goes through those verses there to even persecution, that's kind of the, the just beautiful Christian life. We see it, the model of the engineered product in verses 13 through 16. Another simplified definition of similitude is that it is the form itself. So when we say, what does it look like to be poor in spirit? What does it look like to be mourning? What does it look like to be meek? I mean, all these things. Rory, can you just simplify it a little bit for me? Well, we have the simplified version in verses 13 through 16, where Jesus gives us two images that show the new character and nature of a Christian. It shows the Beatitudes lived out in simplified model-like form. These two images show that nature of a Christian, a believer, a disciple of Christ, that person who is living out and has their attitude, the Beatitudes. These two images are salt and light. Salt and light. We have the practical application of the principles of the Beatitudes put here. The practical application given to these disciples and to their successors of all time, even to 2014 Crook County. The similitudes, it's just the simple practical application for some country boys and girls like us. I lump myself in there with you country boys. Hope you don't mind that. One man wrote, No sooner is a man born unto God than he begins to influence men with an influence which is rather felt than seen. And we're going to see that in the passage here of salt and light. And so first of all, verse 13, we have the salt. We have the seasoning where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, if you've got your Bible, maybe you've got a pen, you might notice the first word, you can kind of underline it, you, you, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the immediate context were the disciples who had kind of separated with Jesus apart from the multitude and were being taught here by Jesus. So when he's saying, you are the salt of the earth, he's talking to the disciples there on the Mount of Beatitudes. That's the immediate context. But we also have the distant context where Jesus is speaking to all disciples for all time. All disciples for all time. So when he says you, he's speaking to disciples. And so if you are a Christian, a believer who has been born again by the spirit of God, you've repented of your sins and you've turned to the living Christ, Jesus as a sacrifice for your sins and someone to wash away your sins and give you new life that you can now live not for yourself, but for him and for his glory you are a disciple, a follower of the teacher. And this message is for you. You are the salt of the earth. But we might also read this out of context when we might just say anybody, anywhere, ever, 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 whoever you are, no matter what religion you are, no matter what doctrinal stance you hold to, 
you are the salt of the earth. And that would be out of context, out of the context of who Jesus is talking to, out of the context of the whole of scripture. If you are not a Christian, you are not the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. The value of salt, as Jesus uses this picture, is just very clear to the listeners. You know, to us, we think of a seasoning, but to the listeners, they knew, they thought of it as something much more valuable. And before we get into that, we want to know that in Scripture, mankind, who is just left to himself unrestrained, is of very evil nature. This is why I say that if you're not a Christian, you're not the salt of the earth. Because in and of yourself, you are wicked, you are depraved, you are separate from God, you are war with God, you are in darkness, and by no means are you the salt of the earth. You are entirely corrupt apart from Jesus Rory Rogers is entirely corrupt, depraved, worthy of the flames of hell and the wrath of God for all eternity, apart from the mercy and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But the remedy, Jesus says, is the active presence of his disciples among the world and among their friends and their peers. That as the character and the principles of Christians, the Beatitudes lived out, are brought into close contact, contacts of friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and fellow teammates. As we're living the Beatitudes out, rubbing shoulders with the world, the corruption of the world begins to get a little bit saltier. And humanity is seasoned in its blandness. The Roman philosopher Pliny says something in the Latin that I'm not going to bore you with. (laughs) So the English translation is, without salt, human life cannot be sustained. The scripture just shows us that picture the darkest darkness of darkness and shoot it on a rocket ship into the darkest part of space and then color it in with a dark Sharpie marker. (laughs) And that's how dark the darkest of earth is. I mean, the world is so depraved and so sick, it's just completely void of any light whatsoever. But God in his mercy chooses to use his disciples to bring in a little bit of light. And to bring in a little bit of flavor. Without salt and without the light, human life cannot be sustained. No doubt as the disciples were hearing the teaching of the Lord Jesus, they felt so few and so weak and thought, man, what can we do here? But the encouragement of salt is that it just takes a little bit spread throughout to make a difference. And so the readers understood the value of salt, and we today, 2,000 years later, we still understand the value of salt. First of all, salt gives flavor to the flavorless. It gives flavor to the flavorless. Is anybody here just a total salt addict? My kidneys probably look like raisins. I mean, maybe everybody's new. I don't know, but I'm probably not very healthy because I love salt. Don't tell anyone, but my wife likes to lick the salt off the tortilla chips. Oh, she's here. And that's it. Then she eats it. That's all. That's all I'm saying. That's all she does. Myself, though, we were on vacation this week over in the coast, and every night one of our families in our family makes dinner. So it was my family's turn, and I made 
pork chops and this one Pioneer Woman cookbook recipe that I use. I mean, it is like just basically take salt and dump as much salt on the pork chop as you can. And I'm like, amen, sister, you know, and I'm just like (laughs) tons of salt. And as I set these beautiful pork chops out on the table, I told the whole family, everybody get an extra large glass of water because these babies are going to suck you dry. I love salt because salt gives great flavor. And you know what? Jesus tells disciples that you're to be the flavor in the world. You're to be seasoned with the gospel, with the salt of grace. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus says, Let your speech be, this is Paul speaking, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you might know how to answer each one. So just the flavor we bring to the world, even in conversations. One preacher, Matthew Henry, said that that disciples are to transform the world into the taste and relish of the gospel. I love that because I like relish too. Salt and relish, right? Hot dog without relish, good for nothing but to be thrown in the trash can, as far as I'm concerned. We are the salt, the flavor, the relish of the world. Uh, A preacher named France, thought you'd like this one, Frank, from France, wrote, Disciples, if they are true to their calling... Make the earth a purer and more palatable place. So what we do as salt of the earth, make the world a more pure and palatable place. Salt also brings healing to wounds. My dad was a veterinarian, and one of his key remedies was dip something in Epsom salts. Okay, you know, my big fat Greek wedding and the dad that has the Windex and he's like spraying on on everything that hurts. Remember that guy? Well, my dad had Epsom salts, you know, and, you know, he dip horse hooves in them and sit that in there. And, you know, and so you have any problems, dip it in Epsom salts, right? Why? Because it brings healing. It sucks out the infection. It brings healing. So, too, does the salt of the earth. Christians, disciples, living out the Beatitudes, so too do we bring healing to the world around us. As we preach the gospel, as we display the gospel, as we live out the gospel, salt makes us thirsty. Salt purifies. I have a little above-ground swimming pool in my backyard, probably 12 by 20 good enough for me to jump in and totally get refreshed. And last summer I tried to do the chlorine thing and I just not a chemist, obviously. And it would just turn green, just nasty green. You guys know, but I heard this year about saltwater pool filters. And so I bought it online and I dumped 110 pounds of salt in my pool, turned it on. It's crystal clear all summer long. So that's my commercial advertisement for saltwater pool filters. But salt purifies. Adam got it too. It's pretty good, huh? Salt brings just what was mucky and algae filled and it purifies. So too do we as the salt of the earth bring about purity. Salt preserves and in ancient time was packed onto meats to slow the decay process so too do we have a preserving influence in our culture something that prevents the moral putrefication and you think at our of our country and you know it seems that our country is it is going slowly downward but imagine what our country would be without the salt and the light of Christians. There's probably more on that to be said as we get into the light portion of the similitudes, but salt also must be shaken. It must be spread. Just as seed is spread to have its effect, 
so too does salt need to be spread throughout. Salt was something that was precious. In fact, salt could be used as payment uh, for people's labor. If you've ever heard that, you know, those people aren't worth their salt, it's an ancient Roman expression of getting paid in salt. Now, Jesus shows us a negative issue with the salt when he says that if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned again? If your Christianity, on which the health of the whole world depends, is nothing but name only, if your Christian faith and your declaration of being a born-again Christian is only you verbalizing it one time or another, but not living it out in similar similarity to the Beatitudes then what you've just done is lost your flavor and lost your saltiness. I think it was Jameson and Fawcett and Brown who wrote a commentary together. They said, the question is not if a man lose his grace, how shall that grace be restored to him? But rather, since living Christianity is the only salt of the earth, if men lose that, what else can supply its place? If we're the salt of the earth and we quit being salty, what hope is there for this world? How can this world ever be seasoned again? A Christian who is a Christian only in name who is not bringing the flavor and the healing and the purity and the preservation of Christ to this world, one who's not gracious in their speech or their dealings with one another, Jesus says here they are good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Good for nothing but contempt and scorn indignation and exclusion from the kingdom of God. And I would ask you today by opening up your heart that you would let the Holy Spirit search you and examine your Christianity. Are you similar to the life that we read in the earlier passages, the Beatitudes? Are you salty as a Christian? Does just your presence at the workplace, your presence in the school, your presence on that team, your presence in your community, does it bring thirst for more of Jesus to your neighbors? Does it bring healing in the environment that you're in? Does it cleanse? Have you lost your saltiness? By the grace of God, there's grace today and there's mercy today that you can come and cling to Jesus and ask to be seasoned afresh. That you would appeal to the mercies of God to not be cast out, but that you would cling to him and draw near to him today. So the other illustration that we have is moving from salt to light. We have illumination Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Notice Jesus says you are the light or you are the salt. That is present continuous action. He doesn't say become the salt. He says you are it. If you are a disciple, you're the salt. You're it. You're the hope for the world because you carry the salt of the gospel. And you carry the light of Jesus Christ. And so you are either fulfilling your responsibility as salt and light, or you are shirking that responsibility. And he says, you're the light of the world. Now, salt was for the dead meat, but light is for the living man. An external shining and giving direction. There's nothing more useful than the sun and the salt. 
There's nothing more useful than the sun and the salt. And all who have the salt are urged by Jesus now to shine and show their light. Now, this is an incredible thing that Jesus would say, you are the light of the world. Because in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Me, Jesus, the son of God, God clothed and draped in flesh who created all things. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Then he says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What an incredible privilege that the one who is the light of the world has declared his followers to be the light as well. This is a title that is expressly said to be unsuitable for even the best prophet, John the Baptist, where in John 1, 8, it says, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he bore witness of the light. And then just a couple chapters or a little bit of time later, and we have disciples of Jesus, and they are called light. That is an honor. That is a wonderful thing. Now, we are not the source of light, but we have the light. We are the candle that now possesses the light. We are illumineers, if you will the name of a popular band right now. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 say that the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Now, remember, Jesus is telling his disciples that they are the light. This is not a blanket statement to everybody out there in all of creation. It's the disciple, the follower of Jesus, that is the light and possesses the light. Before Jesus, every single one of us were wicked and our way was darkness, our proverb just said. We didn't even know what made us stumble. We would be just stumbling and tripling and falling and just walking in total debauchery. And we didn't even know what it was that was causing such depravity. But then Jesus comes in and the gospel comes in, the good news. Where Colossians says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And maybe you've come here today apart from Jesus. You need to know that outside of Jesus, you are not light. You are not even a dim light. You are darkness personified. You don't even know what's making you stumble. But by God's grace and his mercy, he's for some reason, drawn you here today to hear a message where Jesus would tell you, I want to transfer you and convey you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, Peter tells us. Out of darkness, into the marvelous light. Out of darkness and made a son of his love. Ephesians 5 says, that you were once darkness. It doesn't say you were in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I want you to ask yourself right now, have I been transferred? I'm not asking Are you an American? I'm not asking, are you a Republican? I'm not asking, did you get a big degree on your wall that shows you're some kind of good person or you've won an award for philanthropy or something like that? I'm not asking any of that stuff. I'm asking, have you been transferred by the Spirit of God from a state of darkness into a state of light? That's available for you today. And even where we're at, where you're at right now, you can just pray to the Lord. Lord, will you 
do that transfer right now? Will you take me out of darkness and wickedness and depravity and bondage and selfishness and wrath and murder of my heart and gossip and anger and all of those things? And would you transfer me into love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control? Will you do that? Will you have mercy upon me by what you've done on the cross? Jesus tells us that once we have been transferred to be light, we're to walk as children of light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. When you go to Israel today, you go to the Sermon on the Mount, or the uh, Mount of Beatitudes, where the Sermon on the Mount took place. And there's a big sea below the mountain. It's the Sea of Galilee. And from there, you can see a town across the, the sea or the lake. It's really more of a big lake, like Klamath Lake size or something like that. Across the lake, there's a town called Tiberias. And at nighttime, you see Tiberias, a city that's set on a hill, and it's got all of its lights, and it just shines in the midst of Galilee. And those lights kind of reflect off of the water of the Sea of Galilee. And nowadays there's nightclubs and stuff there that from the other side of the sea, you can hear the those Israelites know how to get down. But it's interesting to be there and be like, okay, here's where Jesus preached it. And there's the city that was set on the hill. No doubt he was kind of referring to that. And when we are a city of God here, when we are a city of lights, it is very difficult to hide it in this town. Jesus goes on to say, verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so not only do we see illumination, that we need to be born again and born again and be illuminated, but there needs to be correct placement of the light. I'm glad the children are here because no doubt they think of the song, only the kids probably think of this, but you know, hide it under a bushel. Yeah, all right. I'm going to let it shine. There needs to be correct placement of our lights. The basket and the bushel, they all have their place. They were actually common household things. Mark's gospel says, hide it under the bed. No. Don't do that. Those household things, they've got their place. But we shouldn't let those common household good things hide our light. We need to purposefully place our lights in places where they may shine. One thing I loved about moving to Central Oregon is in Corvallis, it's always raining. And so people will drive into their garage, shut the door behind them, and you never see them. But here people park in their driveways and they come outside and they actually talk to each other. And it's a wonderful place to be out and about and among people. What this similitudes teaches us is it preaches against isolationism. That we would just go live on a mountain and hide or just hide in our house. But we need to be out and among people and place ourselves as light so that we can shine. That's the main reason I coach soccer. That's the main reason I coach baseball. It certainly isn't for my soccer or baseball skills, which are none. Hey, no amens back there. But it's so that I can be a light in this community. If I wanted to, I could go into my church office and shut the door and only talk to Christians and just stay there. But I know that I'm to be a light in this world and to get out there. What is darkness but the absence of light? Guys, we need to be out in this world, just not of this world. We need light in our politics. Check out my Facebook post today from Charles Spurgeon about the place for the gospel and the place for the light in our politics. We need the light in our politics. We need the light in our school system. 
I encourage you to pray about if you're to remove your children from public school. Maybe the Lord has that for you. I know some elders in our church have recently wrestled through that for their family, and the Lord's leading them to homeschool for a few years. But I know that their heart is, let's be lights however we can. And I know the Lord has just moved on our family to leave for the time being, put our son in public school. He's preaching the gospel there and that we're to go and volunteer in the school so that we are in the school being light in the school. Hide it under a bushel? No. Even you homeschool families, you can still homeschool and honor the Lord and and protect your children's minds. But don't just lock the door behind you. Come and be in the community and let your light shine. Charles Spurgeon says, poor world, poor world. It is dark and it gropes in midnight and it cannot get light except it receive it through us. To be the light of the world surrounds life with the most stupendous responsibilities and so invests it with the most solemn dignity Hear this, you humble men and women, you who've made no figure in society. You are the light of the world. If you burn dimly, dim is the world's light and dense its darkness. And instead of putting it under the lamp, uh, under the basket, the bushel or the bed, what are we to do with it? Set it on the lampstand. Set it on the lampstand. In the book of Revelation, will you flip over there with me? We are almost done. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John the Revelator has a vision of Jesus in his resurrected state. And it says in Revelation 1, 12, this is the last book of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 12. John hears a voice, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, we have this description of Jesus and his glory, and then down in verse uh, 20, he says there's a mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or pastors of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So in the book of Revelation, we're going to have seven churches mentioned and they are represented by seven lampstands, okay? Now, now as you go to chapter 2, verse 1, here's a letter to one of those churches. To the angel in the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So if we have seven churches represented by lampstands in the book of Revelation, and Jesus is walking in the midst of them, what does that tell us about Jesus and his relationship to the church? That he is present. That he's even here today, that he walks in the midst. He knows what's going on here. So much so that in chapter 2, verse 5 of Revelation, he has some correction to speak to this church. And he says, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so the churches are the candlesticks, the golden candlesticks on which these lights are placed that the light may be diffused. You know, in picking this sermon, I had no intention of given a big plug for the church necessarily, but we are going through a series normally in our Sunday morning study to restore and revive our passion for the local church. And so I think by God and his sovereignty, his control, he knew that we needed an encouragement that we are not to hide our lights, but we are to set our lights out for the world to see and to place them upon lampstands. 
And we see in the New Testament, where are those lampstands found? They are the local church. The local church. The lampstand, Charles Spurgeon says, he speaks of a man named Bede who interpreted this text and said that Christ Jesus brought the light of God into the poor lantern of our humanity and then set it upon the candlestick of his church that the whole house of the world might be lit up thereby. So indeed it is, dear Christian friend, join the church that you may be placed where you will be in order with the arrangements of the divine household. And so I just ask you, with your light, Christian, are you using it correctly? Are you hiding it? Are you neglecting it? Are you ashamed of your light so that you don't speak it and declare it? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe. Man, hide it under a bushel. No, let it shine. There's a lampstand of persecution in the world today. And right now you flip on CNN or you flip on Fox News or you flip on whatever news or you get on Twitter or Facebook and it is just almost every other post or every third post or something like that has to do with the persecuted church today. I mean, you go to the main web pages of Fox News and you'll see Christians and a few different stories about Christians right now. Guys, Christians are in the spotlight. They right now are truly the light of the world. People are talking about Christians. It was a trending subject on Twitter within these last few weeks. Christianity. Let's give them something to talk about. We pray for the persecuted church that they would let their light shine. And Jesus says, and we're concluding here, that when we let our light shine, it will be seen by men and they will glorify our Father in heaven. Guys, that is our chief aim. That is our target. The crosshairs come together at God being glorified and lifted up. And if you are salt that has lost its flavor, you're not glorifying God. Or if you're a non-Christian who's come to this place and you, you have no saltiness to you, there is no glory going to God from your life. Or if you're a Christian here today and you are hiding your light under a bushel or a basket or a bed... <laughs> As Mark says, you are robbing God of his glory. Let's let our light shine before God. I'm looking for every opportunity right now. And always as you teach, you always want to lead in that. But how can I shine for you? How can I shine for you? I have new neighbors right now who are building a house next to me. And they've ticked off our whole neighborhood. Nobody likes them. But I love them. And so I'm building relationship and I'm trying to be a peacemaker and I'm, you know, just use my hose, use my deck. Do you need a diet Pepsi? You know, just, I want to love you. I want to show I love you. And gosh, try to be the light and be the peacemaker. Walking on the beach yesterday, there was a lot of wind and one of the houses by the beach had its garbage can just, uh, just blown over all over the driveway. And I just felt the Lord just say, go and, and just love on these people by picking it up and putting it away. And, you know, my mom and my sisters and everyone, they're riding their bikes. Oh, aren't you just a little servant? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm actually really selfish. But the Lord just moved in me to be a light and to represent him. And just the Lord's changed me. And they all remember the day when I was the selfish, most selfish, rotten brother, rotten son, and they can all attest, God has changed you, and they give God the glory. And so we're going to close here today, coming to the communion table and remembering the true source of light, Jesus Christ. We can have the worship team come on up. The true source of light, Jesus Christ, who shone out of the darkness 
And he came and his life was the ultimate example of the Beatitudes lived out. His life is like the similitude. His life is the model. It's more than the model. It's, it's it. He is the example of dynamic, kinetic, if I could use that word, physical. He lived out the Beatitudes. And as he did, he is just the most pure salt of the earth. He is the light of life. And we come to the communion table today to remember what Jesus has done. He says, when you take the communion, do it in remembrance of me. And so as you come to the table today, you can grab the elements and we're going to just hold them in our hands. We're going to partake together. And as you hold the elements, just remember Jesus today. Remember his body that was bruised and crushed. That was the sponge that absorbed the wrath of God. And thank him for being the light of the world. Remember his blood that was shed for the remission and the forgiveness of sins. And thank him for being the salt in the light. And today cling to Jesus that he could just, by his presence, by your contact with him today, he would just infuse saltiness into you. He would infuse illumination and light. And before we come to the communion table today, maybe you have come to this park and it's your first time or you're new here or you were walking by. And when you stepped into this grass, you were not a Christian. You were not a born again follower of Jesus. And if you're dishonest with yourself, you would know that that's true. And Jesus would say, come and receive me and I will give you light. Come receive me and I will give you light. And you will be light. You will be salt. You will be useful. John tells us that when we are in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we pray today that you would come into the light of the Lord Jesus. And you would receive the cleansing of sin that comes from the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. You can do that right here where you're at. You don't need to stand up, sit down, turn around, right hand in, right hand out, left hand in, left hand out. You can just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. And you watch what God does in your life. You watch what God does in your household. As he says, that light will shine and illuminate the whole household. You watch what God does in this community. But let's move to remembering Jesus. And any man, woman, and child that would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today, you can be saved and illuminated and seasoned by the grace of the Lord Jesus. Last time we were here, we had one single line of people that went almost, you know, to the past the garbage can out there. And so come on up and, and we'll make three separate lines, one from this side, one from this side, one down the middle so that we can go through the communion line quickly. But once you get the elements, consider Jesus the true and most pure salt and light this world's ever known. And let's just receive a fresh, fresh infusion of salt and light by the Spirit of God today. And then we'll partake together after this song.
Lord Jesus, we remember how much we need you past, present, and future. We could not live righteous lives. We were too weak in our flesh. But Lord Jesus, you have lived the righteous life. You have fulfilled every sentence of the law. And we thank you that that perfection is now available for us afresh today. And so we receive your righteousness. We, we, we receive your rightness, Lord, your perfection. Lord, we acknowledge that our sin and shame and failure and rebellion and purposeful debauchery was taken upon you at the cross. And we thank you for being our substitute, for paying a debt that you didn't owe, and now for calling us your own. We thank you for your body that was broken for our freedom, Lord. Let's take the bread together. We thank you for your blood that was shed for a propitiation for our sins as you paid the ransom price with your precious blood, O oh Jesus. Thank you for your blood. Let's partake of the cup. We thank you, Lord, that the first time the word Father is mentioned in the New Testament for disciples and believers to realize that they have such a deep relationship with their God through Jesus. It's in this passage, Lord. We thank you, Father. We pray that you'll be glorified as we leave this place, actually here in this place, Lord, that we would shine as lights to the community around us. We pray that they would see these good works that are just born out of thankful hearts and that are just empowered by the Spirit of God and that they would glorify our Father in heaven. Be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen.